This is Software Engineering Radio, the podcast for professional developers, on the web at se-radio.net. SE Radio brings you relevant and detailed discussions of software engineering topics at least once a month. SE Radio is brought to you by IEEE Software Magazine, online at computer.org slash software. Hello, this is Josh Long for Software Engineering Radio. Today I have with me Cedric Champeau. Uh, Cedric is a committer of the open source Groovy language and he's currently working for Gradle, an innovative scalable build system that internally uses Groovy. He wrote a number of the recent improvements of the language, including static compilation, a templating engine, and more recently he introduced Android support. He's an open source advocate and a member of the Apache Software Foundation. Hi Cedric, welcome to Software Engineering Radio. Do you have anything you want to add to that bio? Hi, so no, I think it's pretty complete, no, thanks. <laughs> Well, thanks for joining us. Welcome to Software Engineering Radio. We on the uh, Software Engineering Radio podcast like to explore uh, old languages and new ones alike. And Groovy, of course, has been around for a long time. Can you tell us about how and when Groovy was created? Yeah, sure. So Groovy was created uh, more than 10 years ago, actually. So in 2003 by uh, James Strachan. So at that time, it was uh, a language one of the first language on the JVM apart from Java, basically. So he wanted to create a dynamic language for the JVM inspired by languages like Ruby, um, but something that would be closer to, to Java, to what the Java developers had in mind. And it was, it was a pretty innovative idea at that time because not many things were done on the JVM apart from Java. And having the idea of creating something dynamic for the JVM was, at that time, very innovative and probably a crazy idea. And uh, yeah, I think today it's more than 10 years that the language has been created. It's used really in a lot of different contexts. And uh, very recently, so uh, just at the beginning of this year, uh, the language just joined the Apache Software Foundation, so it's now really a, a language which is backed by very well-known open-source foundations, so something that is really leaning towards the future. Did the language live at a uh, sort of foundation before? So before, it was really a language created by, uh, I would say, uh, geeks. <laughs> Basically, so it was a language developed during the, the weekends, but it was so impressive what it could do that it really became evident that you could have support, professional support for it. So I think it was um, in 2008 that a company was created, which was called G21 at that time, by Guillaume Laforge, uh, Graham Rocher, and um, uh, Alex Tuckman at that time, and those guys were really wanted, really wanted to, to create something to support the development of the language. So before 2008, the language was created and developed in a totally open source fashion, and starting from two, 2008, it was company backed, and um, yeah. It, G21 later was acquired by SpringSource, then VMware, eventually Pivotal, and it's really recently, so at the beginning of the year, that Pivotal ended sponsorships for, for, for that language and that we moved to a foundation. But technically, the language existed before um, f funding of uh, companies, so it was an open source project from the beginning and it's still an open source project developed now part of the Apache Software Foundation. And has the move to the uh, foundation increased or diminished interest and activity around the language and ecosystem? So it, I would say it really interested more people, actually, because before that, some people were not really wanted to, to, to use Groovy just because it was company-backed. So they were thinking that 
if the company removed money and removed the funding, the language could disappear. And it's true that we have seen some recent project disappearing just because the company stopped funding the project. So because we moved to the Apache Software Foundation, now we see more people on the mailing list asking to help developing the language. So we still don't have released anything yet under the foundation because we have some yeah, technical process to follow. You know, we're in something which is called the incubator and we have to um, make sure that we follow the release process, etc. Basically, I think that now that we are in the foundation, more companies will be interested in investing into the language and it will not be seen anymore as the product of uh, Pivotal or before VMware, etc. So, a lot of interest actually. Yeah. Very good. The original language was, is it fair to say that it was designed to look or feel sort of like Java at the time? Totally, yeah. And I think it's still true, actually. The, so the language borrows the syntax of Java. So it makes different semantics of, on top of that. But basically, if you know Java, if you know the language Java, you know how to program in Groovy. So you can almost copy and paste Java code and it will compile as Groovy code. So there are some subtle differences in the syntax, but in the beginning the language was really made to work with the Java grammar. So one question of course would be if it is the same syntax, why is it a different language? And it is a different language because it adds a lot on top of Java. So it adds a lot, but I would say it also removes a lot. It removes a lot of boilerplate, actually. So, so in the very beginning, for example, for, for, for those of you who are aware of what a closure is, Groovy added closures since day one. So we had some functional programming features in the Groovy language in, in the right beginning of the, the creation of the language really much before Java, actually, they, they did the same in Java 8, basically, but, but Ruby had that since, the, since day one. I understood that up to a point you could take Java 7 code and, and paste it into a Groovy file and then run that. Is that still true with Lambdas, or is there interchangeability there? No. So because of that closure syntax and the Lambda syntax, so in Java 8, we have the Lambda syntax, which is for those functional interfaces. And the syntax is very close to what Groovy has. It's not the same, but it also has some very different semantics from the closures. So today, you cannot copy Java 8 code in Groovy just because we don't support the Lambda syntax. And we don't support it yet because we want to make sure we made the right decision regarding the semantics of lambdas in Groovy. So it's not that we will not support it, it's really that we want to make sure we make the right decision regarding support for that. And at any rate, as you say, the languages, the two of them, when compared to each other, it's pretty easy to translate? Yes. Yeah, I, I love to say that basically if you, you take some Java classes, you remove a lot of the boilerplate code and you have Groovy. So it's really, you, you, you remove most of the verbosity of the language. So for example, uh, we know that it's really simple examples, but in Java, 99% of classes or methods are public and Groovy by default, it would be public. So you can remove the keyword. Um, that's an example. You can remove all the semicolons, for example. Also, so that's really something that you don't need or if you have, uh, you, you know, some, it's it's an, something that we also see very often in Java code. It's something like if x instance of something, then you have to cast inside the if just to be able to call the methods. In Groovy, you don't have to do that, etc., etc. So it's really removing all the, the the code which is not necessary, and we have some wonderful metaprogramming. Um, capabilities to help uh, doing that. 
is the you just mentioned that you don't have to cast. Does that mean that Goofy is loosely typed, or what does that mean? So it's yeah. So it's a dynamic language at the beginning. Uh, what I had done in the fast in the last uh, few years is uh, a static version of the language. So you have the two options actually. So you have strong typing. So Groovy is a strongly typed language, but it's also dynamic. So when you don't have to cast, it's actually because you fall back on the dynamic runtime. So when a method is invoked, it is invoked based on the runtime runtime types. Sorry. So say you don't, you want to call the method foo on an object, then different. It's very different from the Java. Uh, way of invoking methods because you will take the object and check at runtime if it has a foo method. So for those of you who are familiar with languages like Smalltalk, it's really similar because you have a meta-opt protocol finding how a method should be invoked. And this is runtime metaprogramming. So Groovy fully supports that. So you can totally override the behavior of invoking methods at runtime. And really, it doesn't mean that it's not typed. It is strongly typed. And it, it is really because we have strong types that we're capable of handling that. So it was one of the, maybe, I would say, problems that some Java developers had with Groovy because they were familiar with uh, compile time errors. For example, if you try to invoke a method which doesn't exist on an object statically, they didn't have any compile time error because Groovy will let you define, for example, the behavior of an object if it doesn't have a method. So if you call a method that doesn't exist, you can still do something, which is very useful for some cases. We can talk about that later if you want. And that was a problem. So for some people, at least, some are very familiar. For the Ruby guys, it's really something that they're familiar with. But for Java developers, it's really surprising behavior. So we added a static, a fully static mode to Groovy uh, that mimics basically what Java does with more, even more type inference than what Java is capable of doing. And in that case, you have really the same behavior between Groovy and Java with strongly typed features. And I would say that it's even more pleasant to use Groovy in that case because of the advanced type inference that Groovy provides. So this type inference and this extra uh, succinct or you know, very clean syntax that you're describing does yep. that mean that Groovy lends itself to uh, sort of scripting as well? Yes. So there are multiple use cases for Groovy. So the first, historically, the first use cases were really scripting because one of the, the, the key points of Groovy is that you have Groovy scripts. And a Groovy script is basically what you would write in a Java class in the main class, a uh, main method of a main class. And... When I talked about boilerplate code, it's really that, you know, in Java, if you want to write something and just test, test a few lines of code, you have to create a class and a main method, and inside you have to write that code. In Groovy, you don't have to do that. You just write the main body, and it's executable as a script. So it was one of the main use cases of Groovy, and, uh, yeah, you were saying that I work for Gradle. So Gradle is a build system uh, that uses Groovy internally and you have build scripts and those build scripts are written in Groovy. And um, the difference between those scripts, those build scripts and the Groovy script in general is that actually the build scripts of Gradle are what we call a DSL. So it's a domain-specific language build to create builds, so in the case of Gradle, of course. But Groovy is really good at um, designing what we call DSLs. So for those of you who are not familiar with the notion of a DSL, it's basically, it's really simple. If you take SQL, for example, SQL is a DSL. So it's a, a, it's a language that you design for one thing, which is querying a database. 
And in the case of Gradle, we have a DSL which is aimed at writing build scripts. And Groovy is really, it's really, really good at writing DSLs, designing DSLs. And historically, uh, I, I started Groovy, uh, using Groovy myself in the case of a DSL that was designed for linguists. And at that time, so when I started working with Groovy, what was really interesting is that I could design a language, so a domain-specific language, for those people, those linguists, and they didn't know anything about programming. And what they had in front of them, the file, the contents of the file was something that they could read. They didn't have any class inside, they didn't have any method call or something that looked like a method call in the eyes of a programmer and still they were using a programming language without knowing and I really appreciated that because Groovy makes it easy and in the end what what you have what that DSL is compiled into something which is JVM bytecode so you can still have the performance of JVM bytecode and that's really something that really Groovy is very good at. Interesting. So yeah. does this mean that uh, you can... Is there a way to evaluate Groovy code uh, live, interactively? Yes. So we have, uh, yeah, we have multiple tools for that. So one use case would be, uh, well... We, we really talk about DevOps those days and, and for system administrators or whatever, it's often very practical to have some scripts that you can execute. And sometimes just to design the script, it's really useful to have some kind of REPL. So it's a um, read evaluation uh, loop and you just write code and it executes as you write it. It's really, really useful to, to design. So Groovy offers that, so you have a REPL but that is the interactive mode of generating code. So basically when you do that, you have the code which is compiled and executed as you write it. This is one case. And the other one, which is interesting and I would say much more used in the, in the reality by people who use Groovy, is that you can create and uh, instantiate scripts at runtime, so during the application lifecycle, after it has been compiled, you, you, you can still compile scripts and execute them at runtime. So you really have the option to compile code at runtime. So the, the two aspects of the dynamic code execution. I see. <clears throat> so can you, can you take these scripts and then run them directly? And if so, do they... Do they get compiled? Is there a way to trigger the comp compilation directly or, you know, up front? Yes, yes, yes. So you have the two options. So one, one is to, to just stay with scripts, scripts everywhere. That means that when you execute the scripts, it is passed, it is compiled, and it generates JVM bytecodes. So I think it's important to, to, to understand that, that when you have a script, a Groovy script, it's really not interpreted. It is compiled. So you have all the phases that you have in almost all uh, compiled languages, which is you pass everything, you generate an abstract syntax tree, and then the abstract syntax tree is compiled down to bytecode, and then executed by the virtual machine or the, the, the runtime, the language runtime, whatever it is. And Groovy has that. So if you have Groovy scripts, you can execute, for example, Groovy, myscript.groovy, and it will do all that. Compile the script, execute it. But it, it is really one aspect of the language. And the other one is that you can write full applications in Groovy. And in that case, you don't want to recompile everything every time you run the application. Usually what you want to do is do what you have with Java code, with C++ code, etc. So with compiled languages, which is you compile the code, generates the classes, and in the end, 
what you deliver is a binary file and you execute the application. And Groovy allows you to, to mix both aspects. You can have those compiled classes, pre-compiled classes, and you can have those script form classes. Is that, is that pre-compiled? Is there like a Groovy C or something like this? Yes, so you have a Groovy C compiler, which is integrated with the most um, build tools that we have today in the JVM world. So that's, yeah, you have the Groovy C command line tool, you have a, an Ant plugin, you have a Maven plugin, and of course we have a Gradle plugin. So it's really natural to integrate Groovy into your Java, uh, Java projects. And I would even say that on the JVM, there's probably not any other language that makes it so easy to mix uh, Groovy and uh, well, Groovy or whatever language it is with the Java code. So you can use Java classes in Groovy code, but you can also use Groovy classes in Java code. And there, you, you, you can really mix, you can write one class in Java, one class in Groovy, and one call the other, and it's not a problem all. For, for Groovy, you have um, what we call a joint compiler that will do the job of mixing the code. It's, uh, it's really interesting for that because it means that you can start writing an application either in Java or Groovy and mix the languages. And it's really in the, um, you know, today we, we, we talk about polyglot applications and it's really that spirit. You can have an application written in many languages and Groovy makes it very easy to integrate with Java, actually. You mentioned earlier that the language provides uh, all the usual phases as a compiled la language like Java. Because of the sort of plas plastic nature of, of the language, describe, are there other ways to to act on the code in other phases? Can I do things, for example, with the AST tree like, like I could with a, with a Lisp, for example? Yes. So Groovy provides the two aspects. So we have metaprogramming in general, and we have the two aspects of metaprogramming. One is the runtime metaprogramming, and the other one, which is something I really like, is the compile time metaprogramming. So runtime metaprogramming is basically you can, at runtime, decide to add methods at runtime. So you have an object and you will decorate it with new methods or you can change the behavior of calling some method at runtime. So that's what inspects. But since it's a compiled language and that we have access to that abstract syntax tree, actually we can also do some compile time metaprogramming, which is the methods, instead of being added, for example, at, at runtime, you can add them at compile time. And it is very important in case you want to have that interaction with uh, Java classes, for example. Because say that you want to create a class that generates new methods. If you do it at runtime, the Java object will not see those methods because Java is a statically compiled language. So if a method is not defined at compile time, it will not let you call it, of course, because it has to know ahead of time. So Groovy will let you do some compile time metaprogramming. So we call that in Groovy, we call that AST transforms or AST transformations. So it's abstract syntax tree transformations. So it means that we have passed that script. We have an internal representation of the, of the program, which is the abstract syntax tree. And we can manipulate that tree to add some methods, to create new classes, to do whatever you want. And this is very powerful because everything that you have is generated into bytecode, which makes visible to other languages. So be it Java, Scala, whatever you want. So you can call all those methods, all those classes generated at runtime. So for those of you who are familiar with Java, a good example of an AST transformation that we often use is the two string or equals and hash code. 
So those in Groovy are AST transforms. So that's basically an annotation that you put on your class. And once you've done that, the toString method is generated for you. The equals and hash code methods are generated for you. So when we say that Groovy reduces the boilerplate, it also reduces all the common code that you have to write but you feel that it is wrong to write that code because really the compiler could do it for you. You know, generating two strings really often just for debugging. It should be only used for debugging. It's not always the case, but anyway. And that code, you don't care to write it. You know, it's just you have to. So an annotation can generate it for you. So Groovy provides an annotation to do it. And uh, yeah, it's the same for equals and hash code. And probably another example in the, the, the case of design patterns would be the delegate design pattern that we often find in Java, which is you have a class and you delegate to another class to call. And actually in Groovy, it's super easy to do because you just annotate a member of your class with the at delegate annotation. And then it will generate all the delegation methods for you. Which is also interesting because if you change the delegate type and you add a new method, you don't have to change the class which uses the delegate annotation. The compiler will do it for you. So it's really, really interesting. Powerful. And of course, all those methods will be visible from the Java side. Wow. Yep. Yep. Does this, does this, do these AST transforms play into the, the DSLs that you've described? Uh, the, the capabilities that yes. enable DSLs and where are uh, where are they used? What kind of DSLs besides Gradle, for example? Yeah, so Gradle is one for the build system. So you have a very nice declarative syntax to to declare what a build is, what the dependencies are. Uh, if you compare, for example, the the, the a Groovy uh, Gradle script actually with a, a Maven. XML file, you will you will see that it's much more human readable, just because you have that hierarchy and um, of um, you know scoped descriptive uh, means of uh, de yeah describing the build. But that's really one example. But in case of AST transformations, I think the best example that you can find of something that does very I would say crazy transformations on Groovy code is probably Spock. So Spock is a test framework, so for Groovy, but also for Java code. So you can use Spock uh, even if you want to test Java classes. So that's sort of like what you were mentioning earlier, the polyglot programming. Yes, yes. So we have a, a, a testing framework which is called Spock. So you write your classes, your test classes in Groovy, but you can test what is under test is actually Java code or Groovy code or Scala code. You, you don't care really what you want to test. It's really the syntax of Spock, which is pretty crazy. And you can have method names, for example, that have spaces inside. So you can have something like def, and you open the double quotes and say def should uh, create a new database connection. And that's the name of your method. And inside, you will have some uh, labels saying given something, when a connection is created, then you expect something. So it's some kind of behavior-driven development tool. And that makes everything incredibly readable. And so for, for, for those of you who use JUnit or TestNG, moving back to that once you've tasted Spark is really awful because Spark really makes it so easy to read the tests and the syntax is very nice for that. And it's totally based on the easy transformations of Groovy code because if you take a Spark it's called a specification. The test in Spock is, is really specification. Is that the same as sort of a behavior-driven development sort of yes. spec? 
but 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 you can use it for both unit testing and yeah more integration tests whatever it's 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 a bit larger than just behavior driven development and uh, yeah the, the, if you take just a specification of the code and that you try to compile it just as groovy code without spark it will fail compilation and at runtime it would just fail and the reason is that spark internally use in ASD transformation to transform the code of the me the method bodies to something which is actually doing the tests. So it's crazy, really crazy what it is capable of doing and makes it very, very pleasant to test code in the JVM ecosystem. Sounds very powerful. It is. Does, do these AST transforms and these, this metaprogramming and uh, generally all these capabilities that you describe that sound like they let you add new syntax or, or radically change existing syntax, do those features, are they well supported in IDEs? So it depends. I would say that if you rely on runtime metaprogramming, basically, unless you explain to the IDE what your DSL is supposed to do, it will not know because the behavior of the code is it's a runtime thing. So the ID will not know. So uh, in Eclipse or IntelliJ, you have some DSL descriptors that you can write. And what is funny is that those descriptors are also written in Groovy. So it's a, it's a DSL in Groovy to describe the DSLs. <laughs> some kind of meta DSLs. And once you've written that, you can have IDA support. So you can describe to the ID what your DSL is supposed to do. So that is if you use runtime metaprogramming. And one is interesting feature of the language itself, if you use static, the static mode of the language, which again is really something optional. You don't have to. It's By default, it's not statically compiled, it's not the static mode of Groovy which is enabled. But if you do, you, you can enable some very powerful features. And one of them is the type checking extensions. And may sound scary, but it's really not. The static type checking extensions in Groovy will let you plug into the type checking of Groovy and you will be able to explain to the compiler what you are doing. Hmm. And that makes it very powerful because, uh, yeah, you were talking about the templating engine that Groovy introduced recently, and it's it uses that feature of type checking extensions. And basically, what you have is a syntax which is builder-like syntax. So you have HTML, then opening brackets, and inside you have body, opening brackets, etc. So it's code which looks like regular Groovy code, builder-like, but it is compiled statically, hmm. and it's template, and actually the compiler doesn't know anything about a method called HTML, and it doesn't know about the method called P for paragraph or A for links, but you can explain to the compiler, okay, if there is a method that you don't know about, okay, I, as the designer, of the DSL, I know what it does. And actually, it will call a method, which is, for example, create HTML node, which is the name HTML. And you can describe what the method is going to be called, what method is going to be called, and what is the type of the return type of that method call. So you can really describe and plug into the, the type checking system of the Groovy language just to enhance what is capable of doing at compile time. So you have... Like method missing, but even more yeah, powerful, because yeah. now you can say type missing. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you have... A, I'm, I'm not saying that it is easy to do, but it is possible to do it. And once you've done that, you can really have very compact and very um, performant DSL implementation, because you do not rely on runtime anymore. You can do everything statically and you can really switch from, from a mode where methods are decided 
at runtime from something which is decided at compile time. So everything is known before you execute the code. So it's really, yeah, really interesting. And you can have some ID supports for the generated methods for that. So wow. it's pretty cool. Yeah. So far, we've talked about how dynamic this language is in terms of the syntax that it can support, the, the ways that you can express concepts. It sounds like if you're a Java developer used to basic Java syntax, then Guvi will be just as welcoming as if you are a, an advanced developer who wants to really, really use the uh, metaprogramming capabilities to their fullest. Yeah. Is there, I guess Spock is one use case, uh, Gradle certainly is another. Are there other? Yeah. So, so one of the biggest uh, use cases of uh, Groovy today is Grails. So Grails is a web framework that was originally inspired by Rails, and it's uh, yeah, it's some kind of a problem today because people tend to think that Grails is just Ruby and Rails, but for the Java ecosystem, but Grails is really much more than that. Grails is a web framework, a full-stack web framework, but it also provides some microservices um, capabilities. So you can design either uh, a microservice or a full-stack application. You can design web services with, a, you know, if you want HTML backends, but you can also design REST APIs, whatever. And Grace is all about the plugin system. So it is powerful just because of the plugin system. And you can really make it very pleasant to design web applications on the Java ecosystem just using Grace. It's just because it will rely on the, the metaprogramming features of Groovy to remove all the boilerplate that you have to, to, to write. So um, just an example, if you want to have um, a controller, you would either annotate it with add controller or implement some interface, and it will automatically generate all the backend uh, method for that. So if if you have a REST endpoint, it will generate a REST endpoint, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it's really, really easy. It's a, just a few lines of code to create something. Ah, so when you're using it like that, does it feel like a very clean and sort of light Java, or does it feel like a completely different DSL? So the the classes look uh, very much like Java, but without all the boilerplate code again. So you have all those classes. So it's really readable for those of you who are familiar with Java, but you really focus on what you want to focus. You, you 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 don't have to worry about creating all those um, yeah all, all those wiring that you have to create for a typical web application in Java, especially if you think of GEE, you know. So everything is wired automatically. You don't have to annotate anything. It's really by convention. If it finds something in one place, it will generate the code for you. So if you have a class which is in the control uh, source repository, it will know that it is a controller without having to, to do anything. So it's really leveraging the, 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 the conventions to, to make it much more concise. Ah, so it, so it looks and feels very similar, uh, again, as you say, uh, to, a, to a Java without all the boilerplate. It doesn't look like a different language altogether. No. It's not too far. You could easily come into it from there. Yeah. As you become more advanced, maybe you do Gradle and Spock. Exactly. And I would say that often often people, at least coming from Java, start writing Groovy as they write Java code. So it's really easy to find. If you, if you look at Groovy code and you find a class which is written like Java, you know it's a beginner who wrote that because you have all the, you will find all the public modifiers, you will find semicolons everywhere, you will have all the Parentheses, because yeah, in Groovy some some of the parentheses are optional. You don't have to put them. So you 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 see that, and eventually, as you gain expertise in the language, you start removing all which is not necessary, 
and you you end up with something which is very clear to read and I see. that is really what one of the key selling points of Groovy is that you can take that Java code and migrate slowly to something which is more Groovy-diomatic. I see. You've described several different modes of use uh, as a script, as a REPL, as a pre-compiled class. You've described that the language itself can be very lax with the uh, sort of decisions about which types are in place, or they can be very uh, strict because you have this static mode uh how does the language what is what are the language characteristics with uh with regard to performance i mean is it comparable to java or does it is it more comparable to like a ruby or a python or or maybe faster than java are there ways to optimize so yeah there are multiple aspects uh, of performance so in in general uh what i say to people is that you don't care about the performance of the language until you have a problem. So, because often people tend to say, okay, Groovy is slow, so I will not use it. And it's an error because often what is slow is really the database access or I or whatever. That's one aspect. But technically, you have several options in Groovy. So, we have multiple runtimes. So you have the runtime, which is the dynamic runtime, fully dynamic runtime, and we have static compilation. So in case you use static compilation, basically the performance is the same as Java code. So it's yeah, more or less the same. It can be sometimes a bit faster, sometimes a bit slower, but same performance. It's very different if you use the runtime metaprogramming features in the dynamic runtime. So in that case, we have we have two runtimes actually for Groovy because Groovy was created yeah in 2003 and at that time there wasn't any supports in the JVM for dynamic runtimes. So Groovy does a lot of magic into bytecode to be able to perform dynamic calls. So it uses reflection internally but not only reflection, it uses also uh, dynamic generation of code. So you have classes generated at runtime just to make it faster to execute code, etc. Does that use something like CGLib? It doesn't use CGLib. It uses ASM, which is the library that we use to, to generate bytecode. But it's very similar in concept to, to what CGLib does. It's just that C CGLib is more suitable for proxies, basically. You can create, yeah but we have some more general use cases for that. So we directly generate bytecode using the ASIM library. So we do that in the traditional runtime, the legacy runtime. And since actually the release of Java 7, uh, Java 7 introduced a new bytecode instruction in the Java ecosystem, which is called InvocDynamic. And that is really a revolution for uh, dynamic languages like us. And it is also a revolution for Java itself, because if you know the lambdas in Java 8, actually lambdas use InvocDynamic internally. So the JVM itself uses dynamic invocation internally without you, the developer, knowing that. And that new instruction led us to, to develop an alternative runtime for Groovy, which is based on InvocDynamic. So depending on the target JVM that you have. You can either use the legacy runtime, which is enabled, still enabled by default today, or the invoke dynamic runtime if you use Java 7 or more. And the, the, the performance of um, the invoke dynamic runtime should be better. It's not always the case, just because when Java 7 was out, was very buggy and not optimized. And it's much better now with Java 8 because since they use it internally for, for, for Lambdas, they had to improve the performance of Invoke Dynamic. So if you use the Invoke Dynamic runtime of Groovy under Java 8, you will probably see a really good performance boost in, um, in Groovy performance for the Dynamic runtime. I see. But in any case, to give you yeah, an idea, even if you take the legacy runtime or the invoke dynamic runtime, it's still much faster than what you can have with Ruby, for example. Even if you use, yeah, even really, even if you use the the yeah the dynamic runtime. 
I see. So that's that's interesting. It, the invoke dynamic thing is something that came from the Java ecosystem and influenced some of the design in in newer versions of Groovy. Have we have we seen other features that have influenced or changed the way Groovy works? And and perhaps uh, more more interestingly, are there features from Groovy that have influenced Java? Yeah, so it's really, for, for Invoke Dynamic, it's really uh, languages like Groovy or JRuby, who, uh, which influenced Java, actually, because it is because there were dynamic languages on the JVM, like uh, JRuby or, or Groovy, that the designers of those languages asked um, the JVM guys to create something to make it easier to create dynamic runtimes. And it make it made it very, very easy to, to design something on top of that. And the JVM designers took all the needs that we had to, to create a dynamic runtime for, for Groovy, and they extended that to something which is more usable to more contexts. In this case, the lambdas, but uh, it's really something that you can have, um, that you can see as an end user without knowing and uh, I would say that for Java 8, another, yeah, when, when you take a look at the Lambda syntax, it's really actually close to what you have in Groovy. It uses a different syntax, but the concept of Lambdas is very similar to the concept of closures that we had. So it would be, yeah, it would be probably difficult to say that Groovy influenced Java in that uh, situation, but it's really something which is yeah influencing in some way i see has do you think there are other languages that have uh been influenced or been guided by something like groovy yeah so 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 recently uh, if you know the the swift programming language for uh ios and yeah even desktop you no know, applications on on the mac ecosystem yeah Apple ecosystem. So Swift is really language that took from modern languages like Groovy, uh, Scala, and it has some features which are directly inspired from Groovy. So for example, the delegation, um, we have the concept of delegate on closures. And this is something that you can find in Swift. You can find it in Kotlin also. Oh, interesting. Yes, and uh, Kotlin is another language uh, on the JVM. Is this the same uh, delegation that you were referring to when you said uh, you could do method delegation or uh, to another method? In that case, it's a delegation in a closure. So a closure, it's an anonymous block of code. So it's some kind of, uh, yeah, for, for Java, JavaScript developers know that because you have those function, anonymous function, and then you have a body. A closure is the same without having to declare all that function stuff. You just have the body, and that's all. And inside that body, you can have method calls. And the delegation will say, the delegation strategy will say to which object actually those method calls refer to. So it's not something that you will find in Swift in particular, but Swift has some concept of delegation. Uh, Kotlin has some concept of delegation, but the Groovy concept of delegation is much larger, actually, than uh, those languages. So you can really, really uh, have some nice DSLs just because of that uh, delegation system. And um, yeah, just to take another example of uh, features that were borrowed from Groovy in Swift, you have that null-safe um, operation yeah, the it's called the Elvis operator in Groovy just because of the the quote in the yeah the the um, oh, what's the name? I'm sorry, I'm French, so sometimes it's Elvis Presley. <laughs> yeah, in Java, it's often a nightmare to deal with uh, those null pointer exceptions, just because you have to write if it is different from null, then call then call a method, and Groovy can simplify that, and you say. Uh, foo uh, quotation uh, not the quotation and the interrogation mark so foo interrogation mark dot some method and then it will do the null check i see for you and this is this is incredibly 
simple way of dealing with objects that could potentially be null. So it reduces, it removes the the code path where you have to do an if thou, if else. Yes. So this is something that a lot of people are asking for in Java, especially because in Java eight you have that optional. Yeah, that, optional. that optional um, wrapper or monad, whatever you want to call it. But it's not the same. It's really not the same. And especially optional involves a lot in terms of performance and what the, the VM is able to do. And in case of this operator, we don't, we don't do that yet, but potentially we can do some null type inference and totally remove the null checks in case we know that an object is not null. It's not possible with something like optional. So you have some performance implication in using optional types that you don't have if you use the explicit null checks. So in this case, in a sense, Groovy written as idiomatic Groovy can be faster than idiomatic Java for the same sort of check. In theory it could, but in practice it's not the case. It's often not the case just because... Um, in the end, we compile to bytecode, and um, the Java ecosystem has at least the, the, the most widely used uh, JVM, which is the, the one provided by Oracle or the OpenJDK project. So the JVM has something which is called the JIT, it's a just-in-time compiler, and this compiler is able to transform bytecode, JVM bytecode, into native bytecode at runtime. So it optimizes everything at runtime. Including optional but checks? No, it's not capable of doing that for, for, for the reason I explained. So it's not capable of uh, unfolding optional type. But basically what it will recognize is patterns of bytecode which are generated by the Java compiler. So if we generate bytecode, which is different from what JIT is able to recognize, it will not be optimized. So this is, this is really some interesting parts of designing a JVM language, which is sometimes you find some patterns of bytecode which are faster than what Java is able to produce, but in, in practice it's often the opposite. You know, It's something that you have to do, but since the Java language doesn't let you generate that kind of code, you don't have optimizations available. So you were talking about future improvements of the Java ecosystem. And actually, there is a, there is a, a Java enhancement proposal, which is help the JIT. So basically, it would let us designers of JVM languages to explain to the JIT what kind of patterns we generate so that it can, it can optimize them too. Ah, interesting. Yeah. Is this, so this is a uh, JSR? Java specification? I think, I think, yeah, I don't remember exactly, but I think it's not the JSR, but the GEP, so the Java Enhancement Proposal. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's JSR already. I'm, I'm not sure. No, okay. I'll uh, try and link to that in the show notes. Uh, yep. Related, there was a uh, now dormant uh, JSR two four one from two thousand and four, which which uh, sought it tried to standardize Groovy. Yeah, will that ever come back, or will there ever be an attempt to make that happen again? So it's very unlikely that it will come back. Um, so the Basically, the, it's it's a huge, very huge work to, to write a specification of a language, especially after the fact. And so we had two options. Either we concentrated on improving the language, bug fixing, and or designing and writing the specifications. And we decided to go halfway. This we have significantly improved the documentation of the Groovy language, which was a major um, pain point for a lot of people recently. But we have now a new uh, Groovy documentation, which kind of looks like a specification. And when we say that, it's actually that if you go to the Groovy Lang website and that you read some documentation and that documentation contains a snippet of code, you can make sure that actually it's tested. 
So when we execute, when we compile actually Groovy, we compile all the snippets of code that belong to the documentation. So we document the language and the, the behavior of the language. So specify the language after the fact by describing exactly how it behaves. And since we have all those documentation snippets of code included in build, actually, if we ever break something, the documentation is broken. So we can make sure that we don't break uh, the behavior, the existing behavior of the, of the Groovy language. A strong regression suite. Yeah, so it's, um, it's more than just documentation. It's really expliciting everything we do. And it's not as technical and as detailed as a pure specification as you can find in Java specification I see. Uh, itself. Has this, has, the, has this impacted the community size? Uh, how big is the Goovy community? Do we know? Is there a way to measure? So we don't have a clear figure of how big it is, but we have some download figures. And I think last year, uh, Groovy was downloaded almost 5 million times. Wow. So that's really, yeah. <laughs> there are a lot of people using Groovy, and I, I would tend to say that a lot of people use Groovy without knowing it. So if, for example, you use today, if you do some Android programming and that you use the new build system, actually you use Gradle, so you use Groovy without knowing you use Groovy. Huh. Um, if you use Jenkins for uh, continuous integration, Jenkins is deeply integrated with Groovy. You have that new workflow system, for example, which is written Groovy. It's a Groovy DSL. So you have Groovy everywhere. <laughs> and uh, very, yeah, it's, it's used in a lot of applications and really in the big systems, scalable systems. So you have, you have some people saying that Groovy doesn't scale. It's really, really not true. I mean... We have the proof that it's the opposite, actually. So, yeah. I know that large companies, like uh, very large web companies like Netflix, use it quite heavily. Yeah, yeah that's uh, that. That is that is interesting. For for example, every time you click on Netflix to 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 watch some episode, it goes through um, delegation system, which is written Groovy. So yeah. How many committers are there working on the language? I mean, how does it get maintained now that you're part of the ASF? Is so we are currently uh, so we're migrating to the um, the Apache Foundation, which has a, a concept of what is a commit, and active. I would say the active committers, people that write code often, commit often on the code base. It's about uh, six people, but the community of people contributing to the language is much larger than that and we have more than a hundred people uh, contributing to Groovy and it comes it's, yeah, it comes from uh, just contributing some I would suggest fixes in the documentation without having to, to know the Groovy code base itself you can just fix the documentation there are also people um, contributing some small bug fixes and it can come as far as complete new features. So, for example, we have some new features around, uh, around uh, compile time, make that programming coming. Uh, these are big features that involve a lot of code, and those are user-contributed. So it's a very, very wide community and active community. And, uh, I see. And you mentioned uh, Android earlier. One, yes. one amazing thing you can do with uh, Groovy these days is actually run it on Android. Uh, can you yeah. speak about that? Yeah, sure. So um, I would say that f for, for people who are used to develop applications in Java on Android, it's probably a nightmare if you know about Java 7 or Java 8. Just because the code is very Java 5 stylish you know it's it's the yeah i often say it's the anonymous in the class paradise you have anonymous classes everywhere boilerplate everywhere you have all those views that you have to bind 
you have to find a view by ID, etc., etc., etc. And actually, what we wanted to do with Groovy on Android is what we had done for Groovy on the on the desktop on the server. So it's really remove all that boilerplate code that you have to write to create an Android application. And I think we somehow managed to do that because we have some people who started using Groovy for Android before it was actually official, just because it removed so much boilerplate code that it was a pleasure, again, to, to develop applications on Android. So the best example for that is the new uh, New York Times application uh, on the Google Play Store. So that the new application is fully written in Groovy. Wow, that's amazing. That has yeah. a lot of users. And a lot of users, yeah. So, so it's, yeah, it's really interesting to, to know that. And really, we have also an active um, community around that uh, Android sub-project. So Groovy itself is a language that can compile to uh, JVM bytecode, so we support Android now. But in Groovy, since it's a language, you have all those micro-communities. So we have the Grace community, we have the Gryphon community for the desktop, and we have now that Android community. And those people are writing new libraries that are designed to uh, take advantage of the Groovy language to make it very easy to, to write Android applications. So, for example, leveraging those annotations, those AST transformations to reduce the boilerplate code and uh, not having to inject those views, for example. It's just a really simple example, but you, you don't have to generate that code anymore. So perhaps the number of downloads will be even bigger next year uh, with now that we've got the these new communities yeah, springing we, up. We hope that, but unfortunately, now that we have moved moved to the Apache Foundation, the the download figures are going to be more difficult to 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 get because of the mirrors. You know, in Apache, all the downloads are yeah, it's it's all on the mirrors, so you don't have download statistics. Now that uh, Groovy is part of the Apache Software Foundation. Uh, what do you see as once you're once you're past incubation and and the language is on track again? Uh, what what do you think the next big features will be? What's the next version of Groovy look like? Yeah, so the next version of Groovy, the next major version of Groovy, so Groovy three, is probably going to abandon support for all the JDKs. So that's because we want to leverage the full power of InvokeDynamic. So today we have that InvokeDynamic runtime, but because of the history of the language and how it was designed, how the meta object protocol was designed, we cannot take advantage of the full power of InvokeDynamic, and especially in terms of performance. So we would like to redesign the, the meta object protocol for it to be cleaner, faster, and leverage InvokeDynamic fully. And that requires us to abandon support for Java 7, Java 6, and Java 5. Would that mean because that today, the Android port would no longer work? Yeah, today if, we, if you take a Groovy code and that you compile it, you can execute it in Java 6 and Java 7. And that is really interesting for people that cannot use, for example, for example Java 8 and the Lambda syntax you can you have the same groovy basically with the closures but you can have it on all the platforms on java um, yeah java 6 i would say on java 7 and for groovy 3 probably abandon that just because we need to be able to to move forwards in terms of performance and to do that we, we cannot rely on the, the old protocol so it's going to be a big change and that's that's the long term um development that we want to have for Groovy, but we have more features to come for uh, dot, feature, dot releases, I would say, so two dot something. And uh, yeah, one of them is the 2.5 release, which is probably going to bring in the new uh, macro stuff. And that macro stuff is AST transformation simplified, basically, because doing runtime programming in Groovy is really easy, 
doing compile time metaprogramming and especially AST transformations is much harder because you have to know more about the compiler itself and how it works. And what we want to do in Groovy 2.5 is simplify that using some kind of macros and you could write AST transformation much more easier in that case. Okay. Well, Cedric, do you have anything you want to uh, tell the listener? Anything you want to encourage them to check out? Where can they go to learn more about the Groovy language, for example? Yes. So, so the first thing, obviously, is to try the language. So it's really easy to do. So <clears throat> if you're under Linux, you can use the JVM tool. So it's GVM. And it makes it very easy to install Groovy and test it. But obviously, go check out the, the, the new website of Groovy. So it's groovy-lang.org. And we have that new documentation, which is uh, really, I think, much well, much better than what it was before. But we also need your help. I mean, if you want to invest some time in a cool open source project, just help us. Especially now that we're under the hood of the yeah, we're in the Apache Software Foundation, we can have now a much much more broader development and open source uh, development process. So you can still contribute directly on GitHub. We have some mirrors on GitHub if you want to, but you can contribute some fixes or just help us reporting bugs. Just reporting bugs is very important. So yeah, helping can be just as easy as that, you know, submit a pull request or submit bug, bug report, yeah. And what about you? If they want to find out more about you, are you on Twitter? Do you have a website? So I am, yeah, I am on Twitter, uh, so it's Cédric Champeau. And uh, I'm also on uh, GitHub for hosting my blog post. So the blogs, the blogs, post I write are also on GitHub, so it's all open source. I am a big fan of open source. You can find all my blog on, open, uh, on GitHub. And it's, uh, yeah, the, 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 probably going to, to paste the link to, the, to that on the, on the show notes. But if you, want, if you want to have something which is written groovy and generates a blog, you can check out my uh, own blog and you would have something which is really cool. Very cool. Okay, we'll have links to that in the show notes. I think, thank you very much, uh, Cedric, for joining us today. I, uh, I hope it was worth your time. And thank you for uh, the invite. It was a very pleasant time. Good to talk to you. Uh, dear listener, we want to hear from you, as always. There are many different ways that you can reach us. Uh, please feel free to comment on the show on our website, se-radio.net. You may email us at team at se-radio.net or send us tweets on, on the Twitters at SE Radio. Uh, we're also on LinkedIn, on Google+, and uh, uh, we have a software engineering group where you can find us there. And we're always, as usual, happy to hear from you. Uh, with that, I am Josh Long. Thanks, everyone, for joining me and joining uh, Cedric. Goodbye, Cedric. Have a good day. Goodbye, and thank you. Cheers. Thanks for listening to SE Radio, an educational program brought to you by IEEE Software Magazine. For more information about the podcast, including other episodes, visit our website at se-radio.net. To provide feedback, you can write comments on each episode on the website or write a review on iTunes. Mention or message us on Twitter, at SE Radio, or search for the Software Engineering Radio Group on LinkedIn, Google+, or Facebook. You can also email us at team at se-radio.net. This and all other episodes of SE Radio is licensed under the Creative Commons 2.5 license. Thanks again for your support.